Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Bruna. And I'm Jade. And on this month's episode, we're focusing on the topic of facial palsy. Facial palsy refers to a weakness of the facial muscles, which can come as a consequence of temporary or permanent damage to the facial nerves. Yeah, and this damage in someone who has facial palsy means that the muscles in their face don't work properly. And this can lead to paralysis of different areas in the face. Right, so that can mean the mouth, the eyes, or other areas. Um, It really varies from person to person. Yeah, and there are lots of causes of facial palsy. Some are congenital and some acquired. And to tell us more about this topic on the podcast today, we've got several guests. So we have... Charles Nduka, who's the founder of Facial Pause UK, and he's also a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. We've got Karen Johnson, who's the deputy CEO of Facial Pause UK, and Karen also has Facial Pause herself. We've got Elizabeth Robinson, who's a patient advocate from Australia, Matthew Hotton, a clinical psychologist working in the area, and Claire Hamlet, who's a health psychologist with experience of conducting research in the area of facial palsy. And finally, we have Kathleen Bogart, who's an associate professor at Oregon State University. And Kathleen specializes in disability, ableism, and facial paralysis disorders. Serving up everyone on this episode to Mm -hmm. help talk about this topic, which is great. I can't wait to hear what they all have to tell us. Well, let's get right into it then. On today's episode, we first have Karen and Charles, both from Facial Palsy UK. Hi both, thank you so much for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's so great to have you today. So as you're both from Facial Palsy UK, I was thinking that you'd be best placed to tell us a bit more about Facial Palsy and what it's caused by. So Facial Palsy has more than 50 different causes and it can affect anyone of any age at any time and it can be acquired or you can be born with it. Causes include neurological conditions, tumours and cancers, genetic syndromes, viruses, trauma and more. The most common cause, Bell's palsy, occurs as a result of temporary or permanent damage to the facial nerve. In the case of a stroke, it's slightly different because the paralysis is caused by brain damage and the message is not being transferred properly to the facial nerve rather than there being damage to the nerve itself. For some people, the facial nerve is missing at birth, having never developed properly. For many people with facial palsy, just one side of the face is affected, but for others, both sides are paralysed. To describe facial palsy, it's probably easiest to describe some of the symptoms people have as a result of the condition. In many people, it will affect eye closure, making it difficult to blink or close the eye for sleep. The average adult blinks 15 to 20 times per minute, and this acts as a way to clean and moisturise the surface of the eye, Having a problem with your your blink is a bit like having a faulty window wiper on the car. It's difficult to see through a windscreen that is not being cleaned properly. In the case of the human eye, it can also be very painful. The other big issue is being unable to smile in the expected way. People often assume it's just cosmetic when there's a huge psychological impact. Speaking, eating and drinking are also affected. People can be left with long-term physical symptoms, such as the eye watering every time they eat, or the eye closing every time they smile. Many also live with chronic pain. Physical issues like these impact on psychological well-being too. Thanks, Karen. And Charles, as a surgeon, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the treatment for facial palsy. Yes, the, the treatment of facial palsy should be considered as multidisciplinary. So although I'm a surgeon, one of the things that I was very keen to do when I set up the, the service at the Queen Victoria Hospital was to ensure patients had access to the specialties that they needed. And psychological therapy is a key part because, as you can imagine, having your face uh, uh, change or uh, being born with facial palsy can cause problems with social interaction, which in turn can lead to uh, social and psychological or work-based uh, issues for patients. Uh, and so psychological therapy and assessment is a key part of, of any treatment um, and it's something that we, we, we really think is important for, for any centres that are delivering facial quality services. In terms of the issues patients experience, we can divide those into those that are functional uh, and those that are aesthetic. And the functional conditions really we must worry about is the eye because 
if the eye is not closing well and is exposed and not um, protected, then there is a risk of loss of vision. And you know, we still see you know, one or two patients a year who have permanently damaged vision because their facial palsy was managed uh, promptly enough and uh, properly in the early phases. The other issue functionally that patients complain about is the uh, area around their, uh, their mouth, keeping food fluids within the mouth and uh, around their speech, their speech intelligibility, and, and often not recognized or not mentioned issues around breathing. Because believe it or not, there is a there are muscles around the nose that help keep the airway open, and patients with facial palsy sometimes can struggle with um, inhaling through the nostril, especially at night time, where the effect of gravity can collapse the, the internal uh, nasal uh, valve that holds up the the nostril open. So that's another area in terms of function. In terms of the appearance-related issues, now the face is how you well, it's an interface. It's how you interact with the world, uh, and that's why. We should not really just consider it as being an aesthetic or cosmetic issue. It's actually a functional issue because the face's function is its appearance. Uh, and, and that's why it's really frustrating to have uh, patients knocked back by the GP telling them, well, we can't refer you because this is cosmetic. The, the face's appearance is its function because its function is about communication. And if what's being communicated doesn't match with the intention, so you're trying to uh, communicate surprise, but only one brown moves and it looks quizzical, then that's a problem. That's a functional disability. Uh, and, and that's why one needs to consider the patient as a whole. I consider the hierarchy of treatments uh, from those that are non-medical, then those that are medical and those that are surgical. Non-medical things are things that we do that just help support the patient. So even um, just the use of special surgical tape can help to suspend the face into a more symmetrical position. And we have information about that on the facial quality website under the uh, support section. Uh, patients with uh, very weak and very flaccid faces can really be helped, actually, and can help their speech become more intelligible by reducing the amount of laxity in the cheek area. Uh, you can also use the special tape to hold the lower lid in a better position to reduce the amount of exposure of the of the eye uh, when the eye doesn't fully close. The other uh, issue in terms of management is around tightness, which can occur at a condition called synchinesis, when the muscles haven't fully recovered and become uh, very tight and uncoordinated and the best management there really is to get the muscles stretched out uh, and again there's special maneuvers that can be done for that which is usually under the guidance of a specialist facial therapist uh, to stretch the muscles to massage them to ensure that they uh, don't become too shortened um, in terms of uh, other uh, non-surgical treatments these include neuromuscular retraining to help patients to better coordinate their expression it takes a long time as you can imagine uh, consider trying to learn how to do anything difficult like riding a bicycle or uh, playing a musical instrument it requires diligent practice and, and regularly uh, to, to get improvements. Some patients they benefit from uh, botulinum toxin Botox uh, injections which is used to help address spasticity or, or where the muscles are tight. Um, that's something that is again under specialist uh, clinic uh, services and it's something that's principally done to address discomfort and pain uh, for patients, and again, it's not done cosmetically. People think about this as being a cosmetic treatment, but actually, it's a very established medical treatment that's been used uh, for treating muscle disorders for, for over 30 years. And then surgery. Surgery we divide into uh, techniques that are helping to improve the static symmetry, uh, techniques that are uh, designed to improve the dynamic symmetry. So static symmetry is basically where the face at rest is more symmetrical, uh, and we can think about those in terms of the brow, to lift the brow into a more symmetrical position. Uh, the eyelids, yeah, use of weights that can help to put the, the lid in a better position so the eyes not too, too open, uh, and the mouth in terms of uh, straightening the mouth so that food and fluid uh, does not um, uh, leave the mouth without um, control. Dynamically, uh, that's principally around uh, restoring the function of the nerves and muscles. And again, it just depends on, on the cause, the duration, and the pre-existing state of the patient. For example, some patients, due to medical issues or their age, may not be suitable for certain operations. Um, so that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the, the management of facial palsy. Thanks, Charles. That's, that was really, really interesting. Can you also tell us a bit more about Facial Palsy UK? Yeah, um, Facial Palsy UK is a very small charity, but we're trying to address a big problem. At the moment, the pathways of care for people with facial palsy are very poor. So a lot of our work involves helping patients navigate the healthcare system to ensure they receive follow-up care where necessary. We help people via email and telephone and our website 
and those newly diagnosed often tell us how shocked they are by the impact of the condition and how little information they've been given. Many are just given tablets and told to go home and that hopefully it will get better in a few weeks. We get one or two people a week contacting us who've been misdiagnosed and not treated correctly so that can um, impact their outcomes for recovery. Um, there's a wealth of information on the website including details of causes and symptoms, self-help videos, employment advice, support for children and, and more. In normal times, we run face-to-face -face support groups and family days, but as with many charities, our services have moved online during the pandemic. Also, during the first week of March every year, we hold Facial Palsy Awareness Week to try and further educate medical professionals and the general public about facial palsy and the huge impact it can have on people's everyday lives. We also published a children's book which helps to explain facial palsy and aims to empower children living with the condition. And obviously research is important too, and Charles can tell you a bit more about this. So one of the really key things that we wanted to do early on was to understand the problems that both patients and health professionals have with facial palsy. And we, in collaboration with uh, Claire Hamlet at the uh, Centre for Appearances Research, um, conducted a Delphi study uh, into this. And this has recently been published um, around the issues that facial quality patients experience. And, and that was really, really insightful. And it's really important that all research should start with the, the problem to be solved and work backwards from there. And it identified a number of things. So information was clearly an important part of what patients uh, had experienced, both in terms of delayed treatments and also um, been given sometimes the wrong treatments. And for clinicians, uh, the key thing is around understanding what can be done to improve patients, um, both medically and, and uh, non-surgically. From the patient perspective, uh, the information provision uh, driven us to develop some resources on our website, uh, which are some of the most uh, explored areas that people look at. We have a variety of video guides and, and text-based guides around uh, around this, and it's really, really important to us that this is uh, peer-reviewed, which is why the Medical Advisory Board is so key to our, our work. From the perspective of the rehabilitation side of things, we've been conducting a number of uh, publications and research papers uh, that have been uh, published over a period of time members of the advisory board has uh, published in uh, uh, perhaps almost a dozen papers over the last uh, few years around elements of treatment. Personalizing treatment is, is key because every patient is different, uh, both their cause of facial palsy, their, their age, their, their background, their other uh, medical issues. And this led us to work uh, around developing an app that would enable patients to get much information about their specific uh, situation. And that's work that's been generally funded by the VTCT and will be launching shortly to allow both tailored information to be given to patients, but also to get some evidence-based outcome measures as well. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to hear from you and thank you so much for sharing your wealth of information and knowledge about facial palsy. So next, we've actually got a Facial Pause UK ally joining us today on the podcast. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you for having me on the podcast. So, Elizabeth, I know that you have Facial Pause yourself um, acquired, I believe. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about your Facial Pause. Yes, sure. Um, yes, you're correct in that there are two types, two main categories of Facial Pause, congenital, those who are born with it and acquired. So I fall into the acquired case. And what I have is a syndrome called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. It's a neurological, uh, a rare neurological condition. It's also known as herpes zoster oticus. And to put that in more understandable terms, um, what Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is, is a reactivation of the herpes Zoster virus, or sorry, the varicella virus, um, which is the virus that causes chickenpox in younger children. And then when it reactivates as herpes zoster, that's what causes shingles in older people. Um, as my neurologist said when I asked, well, why did my shingles end up where it ended up? 
um, because mostly it appears on the body. He said it was bad luck. And it was literally bad luck that when the shingles became reactivated, the virus itself, it travelled to the ganglion, which is a cluster of cells, uh, of nerve cells. It travelled to the geniculate ganglion, which is the inner ear. Uh, and it's very, very tiny in there. And as a result, the shingles, because it has nowhere to go, it can't inflame onto the skin, it travels up and down the cranial nerves and the facial nerves, inflaming the facial nerves, and they go through a very tiny canal. There's not much space at all for them to travel through to the face. And the inflammation from the shingles uh, results in facial paralysis. Um, in my case, it was a very severe case of um, shingles and the inflammation crushed my auditory nerve, leaving me deaf. And the paralysis was so bad uh, at the time, uh, 90, over 90% of my face, one side of it, the left-hand side, was paralysed uh, and I couldn't close my eye and I couldn't move my mouth at all. Uh, and that was in January 2015. And um, I've been dealing with that ever since. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Elizabeth, um, and just allowing me and the listeners to understand a bit more specifically about the specific type of facial paralysis that you have. And so I wonder mm -hmm. if you'd be willing to share a little bit about how that experience has been for you since 2015, since dealing with this facial paralysis. Well, how, how long have we got? <laughs> right. uh, the the initial acquisition, for want of a better word, um, of, of the syndrome of getting facial paralysis was a complete shock to the system. Uh, one, because when my face did drop, and I won't go into the whole details of, you know, how and when it happened, um, but I, my initial thought was perhaps I was having a stroke, um, but... I could raise my arm, my speech wasn't slurred, so I thought, well, quite pragmatically, no, this isn't it. I uh, thought that it was from the inflammation of my tooth because I know abscess on the tooth can cause facial paralysis and went to my dentist who was the one who said to me, no, you need to go straight to the emergency department. By the time I arrived at the emergency department, the shingles had really inflamed within my ear because I had had a really bad earache but, and had gone to the doctor who had said, no, it's, you're fine, there's nothing there, uh, your ear's not red at all because the shingles can spread very quickly and very aggressively. And by the time that I'd arrived at the hospital, um, I was in incredible amount of pain. Um, it felt like someone was stabbing inside my ear. I couldn't close my eye. Um, I was very distressed because I couldn't move my mouth. I had no idea what was happening to me. And, and of course, people's first reaction at the hospital was, well, this is Bell's palsy. Um, but, of course, good old Dr Google, while I was kept waiting, I knew that it probably wasn't Bell's palsy because of the amount of pain that I was in. Um it took them a long time at the hospital to diagnose me and then I was more or less dismissed with, um, well, this is what you've got and here's a prescription for some antivirals and some prednisone and just sent me home. And from there, I think that's when the nightmare of the syndrome actually set in because it was so painful and... Uh, in my ear and I was so distressed. I didn't know what was happening. Um, I couldn't smile. And then as even as time went on and the pain from the shingle subsided, that to go from someone who had this big flashing smile to, uh, I mean, I couldn't smile, I couldn't close my eye. Um, the prednisone had affected me psychologically I had a very bad reaction to it um, I became quite depressed uh, I would wake up and 
rushed the mirror, just bursting to tears and, and, and crying. Um, there was very little information around. The medication I was on gave me brain fog. Um, I then started to get what I can only describe as fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue, uh, going between wanting to sleep all the time and then not being able to sleep. My hands were crippled. Um, I was in constant pain. I was, I'll be honest, I, 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 was, I was a mess. I, I was a mess both physically and emotionally. And the hardest part was that it just didn't seem to be taken seriously. And uh, I couldn't find any information or any help or any support. Uh, I was very fortunate that I have an extremely good doctor and the neurologist to whom she referred me has been on my journey ever since, was incredibly kind and helpful. Um, and I found that people initially were supportive, but then they, they didn't understand. And I wasn't able to work. I was a languages teacher and I was slurring my speech and dribbling and obviously then couldn't hear and was in a high state anxiety and it did not allow me to, and also because I forgot, because of the deafness, um, which wasn't picked up for quite a while, they thought I couldn't hear because of the pain of the shingles. Uh, I had a lot of vestibular issues. I ended up using a walking stick. I had vertigo and I just thought my whole life was coming to an end, if you really must know. Uh, and that... That went on for, that feeling lasted for nearly two years. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story, Elizabeth. It sounds like you had such a difficult time, particularly at the, at the start of that, that journey for you in 2015. Um, it's not uncommon for people who have conditions such as facial palsy or facial paralysis to also experience some positive outcomes too. Um, and I wonder if that's true for you as well. Definitely. And I'm so glad that you have asked this question because that is something that is, it's so hard with any acquired illness or facial difference to see the positive and one has to in order to move forward and for healing to begin, both psychologically and physically. And I think I got to the point probably in about two years after contacting people, I had to have a brain shift of that I, I can't keep feeling sorry for myself. I, I have to find a way to make sense of what has happened to me and to help other people. And so during that time, I, I did start madly researching facial paralysis, uh, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And the first, and I, I know you've just spoken to, to, to Karen, um, the probably a big turning point and catalyst for me has actually been the contact that I have made with Facial Palsy UK. Yeah, so I did want to ask um, about your involvement with Facial Palsy UK as, you know, I know that you describe yourself as an ally, so I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that. Would love to. Um, I am incredibly grateful and thankful not only to Facial Palsy UK, but personally to Karen Johnson. And um, it's, it's quite... It's almost—it's almost funny how, funny in the sense of uh, coincidental how it all came about. That I had been following Facial Palsy UK because they're just so amazing with the support, with their information, and, and everything that they do. And on one of the posts I had put up that I um, was feeling absolutely gutted by what had happened to me and felt that I could never accept what what had happened to me and my and losing my smile and a member actually on Facebook replied to that and reached out and we made contact um her name is actually Heather Turner 
and I do want to say her name because she's been an incredible friend and ally and she was in the UK and she ended up reaching out and private messaging me through FaceTime or Facebook and I remember bursting into tears because she looked just like me even though the cause of her facial paralysis was from a, a, a vestibular schwannoma and was and she'd been with, living with this for now. 24 but we became great friends and great allies and support and at the same time an Australian journalist had contacted Facial Pause UK wanting to do a piece about facial an article about facial paralysis but the magazine was for women over 50 and he contacted Karen Johnson and Karen straight away thought about me because she she knew I was following, but asked, but didn't want to contact me directly because she wasn't sure if I was over fifty. <laughs> and um, and so it was actually Heather who contacted me, and then I contacted Karen who put me in touch with this journalist who who wrote an article, and it was at that time that I was so in awe of Facial Pause UK and what they did that I thought we need something like this in, in Australia. Right. So I do know that you run a Facebook support group, which is um, recognised by Facial Pause UK. So do tell us a bit more about that if you can. Yes, would love to. And that's referring back to you as well when you, when you asked about finding something positive in something so negative. Um, I became passionate about wanting to support people and the reason I did was because it was the only way I could make sense of what had happened to me and there seemed to be support lacking out there I was I had joined some other support groups but like anything there is the negative and the positive but I found a lot of them to be quite negative and drawing me down whereas I wanted to create something that we could share our shared experiences we could vent but also that had some positivity and, and light and hopefully people would connect uh, so encouraged by um, my friend Heather and, and another friend um, I thought right I'm going to start this support group and a lot of the information I was posting up on it uh, was from Facial Pause UK because they are just the best in the world when it comes to information. And on a lot of the other support groups, people will give their own cures and definitions and what they can. And it can be quite dangerous for people following that advice. And then little by little, it's now grown. Originally, there are only 50 members, which were people I'd said I'm friendly with because they had facial paralysis and um, sort of established my group with that core. It's now grown to over 800 people. And what has come out of that has been an incredible journey of uh, advocacy, of support, of friendship, uh, of sharing of information and collaborating and it's like a ripple effect when these connections are made, what, what happens from, from that. I feel very humbled by the facial paralysis support group. I have had people say to me, oh, wow, you know, you're absolutely amazing what you were doing. And I've always said from the very beginning, I said this to one of my surgeons when he was saying, oh, you're amazing and, you know, you're so sick but you're doing this. And I stopped him and I said, no, I'm not amazing. I said to him, the moment I start believing that kind of hype about myself is the time I step away. I said, but what is amazing is that from such a small group, it can grow and it can help and support so many people. And I feel very humbled every day when I read what people write or um, things that people have said to me that being part of the support group has literally saved them. Um, like myself, and I was honest, I was at the beginning, I felt quite depressed and almost suicidal. Um, 
knowing that by the power of social media when it is used positively can connect and support and in the end it becomes greater than any of us and any one individual and becomes this collective uh, group and so it's interesting I very I try not to call it my support group I always refer to it to our members as our support group. Oh that's amazing well once again thank you so much for sharing that it's really wonderful to hear about kind of as you say the positive aspects that have happened for you as well since since 2015 and all the amazing work that you've been able to do and elizabeth i think another cool thing that our listeners might enjoy knowing about is your new habit of painting that is something that's absolutely wild i've never painted my life before and now i paint face faces i take famous portraits and i appropriate them and give them facial paralysis oh wow that's really interesting yeah um i don't know if you can see that one in the light oh that's so cool yeah i can see that's yeah, so interesting so that's, that's actually mm-hmm. i used a um an acting that's my face okay so that i've been that's my face and i know it's probably how i see on the screen so she's got facial paralysis and because i always wear leopard skin that's sort of bit my lip motif i made her scarf with the the, the leopard skin yeah. uh, that sort of nod that people who know me and I know it's probably hard to tell there but the, the nerves what I do is I then paint gold where the nerves are okay and I base it on the Japanese I don't know if you wrote you know the Japanese uh kutsuru where they believe that if a bowl is broken a porcelain bowl and they mend it with gold that the mended piece has more beauty than the broken, than the original oh. piece, because it's the idea that we all have flaws and scars. So therefore, I paint the nose in gold as a sign of regeneration and renewed beauty. And so I call this whole series, I don't like the word disfigured, um, but I deliberately call this series Beauty Disfigured or Disfigured Beauty, um, because the first one I did, people got a bit of a... Um, sh- they get a bit of a shock and I go because I've got one but I've got in here Venus and they go and they scan it and they go oh because you know once our face is sort of dropped and just and they and I go that's why I call it disfigured beauty and someone said to me well it's very confronting and I said well it's meant to be mm-hmm. it's meant to be it's like saying to people okay I defy you to say that it's not beautiful mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's so cool <laughs> So, I mean, you've, you know, from what you said, it's very clear that you're a very positive person and you're able to take positive things away from any situation. But I do wonder, as someone with facial paralysis, if you've had to deal with any inappropriate questions or comments. Ah, yes, and I think that's something that all of us with not just paralysis, social difference uh, deal with. Uh, you know, a lot of the time it's... Uh, you know, what happened to your face or have you had a stroke or uh, you look weird and and, and the list goes on. Um, I have developed a bit of a thick skin. To tell you the truth, comments and jokes about my deafness um, tend, to, tend to hurt more. Uh, I think because when I made that choice that I was going to be an advocate and educate and support, that I almost welcome people asking me, do you mind if I ask what has happened to your face? Um, because it then gave me the opportunity to to educate and, and inform. Uh, and and especially little children, children are very curious and they want to know. I think their first fear is, can I catch what that person has? So I'm always more than happy to talk to children. Uh, sometimes I think the worst things that have happened have actually come out of the mouths of, 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 of surgeons uh, and, 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 and doctors because they often forget that there is a, a face and a person behind the injury um, or, the, or the condition because sometimes the facial paralysis can be a result of a traumatic injury. 
Um, <laughs> actually, it's just reminding me of a time when I was in front of a room full of surgeons in Sydney and a question was asked of me, you know, if, if there was a magic wand, what would you wish for? Uh, and I look back now and really wish that I'd said, I wish for world peace. Uh, but I didn't. <laughs> I played the game and said, well, of course, I wish for my smile back. But it is something that over the years I have thought of. And when I was at the Facial Paralysis Awareness Day in America, uh, in California, and meeting so many wonderful people and surgeons and people in different parts of the journey. Um, I made reference to that because standing in front of this room full of people and there with Lisa McKinley, who's the CEO of the Bell's Palsy and Facial Paralysis Foundation in America, uh, and she and I have become great colleagues and and friends, and she came to Australia for the day, for uh, my awareness day, um, I made reference to that and said that if I were to be asked that question again, if you were given a magic wand um, and we're going to miraculously, you can wish and get your smile back, but the condition is that you can no longer speak to or have any contact anyone that you've made friends or contact with over the last five years at that time, it was five years of your journey, I would say, no, I, I want to keep my face the way it is. And I'll, I'll be honest, Bruna, I do not like my facial paralysis. More importantly, I do not like my syndrome because of all the other effect causes, the deafness, the vestibular issues, the brain fog, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, with the facial paralysis, it is what it is, and I've accepted it. And the positive side, you asked me this question earlier, um, is that I could not give up those people that I have met along the way. I feel that my life is better and I'm a stronger person and a better person for for what has happened. Not that I was a bad person beforehand. I, don't think so. I like to think not. Um, but I do believe that when with in all of us in face of adversity, that we can become bigger and stronger and better versions of ourselves. And we do that with the support of others. So yeah, I, I would not I wouldn't change it now for anything. Oh, it's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you, Bruna. It's wonderful. It's been so great to have you on the podcast and to hear your story. And um, I'm really grateful that you've been so willing to share that with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Bruna. So next up on the podcast, we have Matt and Claire, who are both psychologists with experience working in this area. And they're here to tell us more about the potential psychological issues associated with having facial palsy. So welcome both. It's great to have you on the podcast. Matt, I know that you work clinically in this area, and I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, in, in 2018, I started working as a clinical psychologist um, in the Oxford Facial Palsy Unit, uh, which is at the John Radcliffe Hospital. And it's a multidisciplinary service for children and adults with facial palsy. So the team is made up of plastic and ocular plastic surgeons, facial therapists and clinical psychologists. I guess the role of a clinical psychologist working in a facial palsy unit is quite varied. So in Oxford, clinical psychologists meet with new patients, assess how they're coping with facial palsy. And that's kind of regardless of whether this is something that's new to them or something that they've lived with for many years. For those who are experiencing significant psychological distress in relation to having facial palsy, clinical psychologists will offer psychological therapy. In my case, I tend to work from cognitive behavioural therapy and increasingly acceptance and commitment therapy approaches. And sometimes patients or parents of child patients 
have difficult decisions to make about different treatment options. Uh, for example, whether to undergo facial reanimation surgery um, or Botox treatment. And in some cases, a clinical psychologist will support them to make this decision by weighing up the pros and cons of different options. And, and that's aided by information and advice that we get from the wider team. Over the past few years, the clinical psychology post in Oxford has actually been generously funded by the Vocational Training Charitable Trust, and they've supported a project that we've just finished looking to design and evaluate the effectiveness of self-help resources for people with facial palsy. So we were able to develop a series of resources tackling different topics that were important to people with facial palsy. So that's things like living um, with appearance-related anxiety, um, experiencing reduced self-esteem and experiencing low mood. And all of that was in the context of living with facial palsy. And our early analysis of our data from this research shows that completing our self-help guides improved certain aspects of psychological and social well-being for people with facial palsy and I guess most importantly they reported that they really enjoyed using them. Thanks for sharing that Matt and so I'm wondering then from your own clinical experience what have you found to be some of the more common psychological issues or challenges faced by those with facial palsy? So well, both Claire and I together actually along with several other colleagues have recently carried out um, two reviews of all the research out there looking at the psychological impact of facial palsy on adults and on children. And the main findings of that, those reviews, um, which actually also echo my clinical experience, is that having facial palsy can have a real impact on a person's mood, their, their levels of anxiety and um, their social confidence. The face is such a visible and important part of social communication and interaction. And so when people have difficulties with facial function and difficulties with producing emotion expressions with the face, this can really affect a person's confidence in social situations. And this can lead to worry about social situations, which in turn can lead people to avoid socialising or just generally become a bit less active than usual. And on top of that, difficulties with speech, eye closure, eating and drinking, as well as physical pain or discomfort, they can all have a huge impact on people's psychological well-being. However, it's kind of worth saying that although the research that we've reviewed and, and we've done to date has given us a sense of the psychological impact of living with um, a facial palsy, it doesn't really tell us about the day-to-day -day experiences of people with facial palsy. For example, how they found accessing treatment, and uh, helping us understand the parts of living with facial palsy that people have found the hardest. And so that's why I was really pleased when Claire got in touch and asked me to be involved in her research, looking into really understanding the lived experiences of people with facial palsy. That's great. And Claire, I wonder if you can tell us more about how this research all started. Yeah, so um, I think it was around 2017, um, Facial Palsy UK approached the Centre for Appearance Research as they really wanted to kind of establish some kind of research priorities in the field of facial palsy. So um, I was actually involved in leading the priority setting exercise for that. So that involves speaking to patients with facial palsy and health professionals to um, come up with kind of the top 10 research priorities going forward. And a couple of those actually referred um, to the need to learn more about the psychosocial impact of living with the condition. So after that, it's kind of like spurred on by um, that kind of do more research in the area and there was very little going on. So I managed to secure some funding from the university and that was to run a study which I, I explored the psychosocial impact of facial palsy and individuals' experiences of care and treatment. So in the end, I spoke to 10 participants um, with acquired facial palsy about their experiences living with facial palsy and also explored a bit more about their experiences of accessing treatment. So what were your main findings from this research? Yeah, uh, there were so many interesting findings that I'm not going to have time to go into today, but um, there are a couple that really stood out for me. So one of them was obviously, like as um, Matt's referred to, kind of your face is so important in everyday life. And obviously the changes that facial palsy brings to the face kind of alters your appearance significantly. So participants really reported about kind of grappling with a new identity and kind of mourning the person that they were before facial palsy. And actually, it was um, interesting that it was like mirrors and reflections and stares in the street and photographs that actually kind of reminded them of their previous appearance and um, kind of was one of the most distressing parts. Another finding was kind of feelings of isolation. So um, participants expressed feeling really frustrated about the lack of understanding and support for their facial palsy from some medical professionals, not all. 
Um, and that kind of resulted in feeling like they're on their own especially in the early days and that was particularly frightening when they were trying to like navigate the condition and work out how it'd be treated and actually some participants spoke about how facial pause is quite different from a lot of other conditions where you know the cause and the treatment and then you feel quite reassured by that because basically um it's a really hard condition to treat and the kind of care and treatment is not really um established yet or there's not really a clear pathway that health professionals are aware of and also um, one of the kind of most significant findings for me was that participants felt like their lives were really on hold due to the presence of facial palsy. And they faced like a constant struggle in trying to understand its cause, as well as obtain some kind of sense of personal agency or control over it. And actually, one of the great quotes in the research was one of the participants says, oh, your face freezes and so does your life. So that was what, really what this is all about. A lot of people spoke about trying to get treatment and kind of like being on this endless pursuit of like researching and trying out different treatments and you know as Matt said he kind of helps people make decisions with um, their treatment and what you know whether it's right for them etc but a lot of these patients with the absence of medical treatment were just kind of pursuing treatment without um, medical guidance and also they funded that themselves which is also quite worrying. And I know that you have both collaborated on developing some guidelines for supporting the well-being of both children and adults affected by facial palsy. So can you tell us a bit more about those and how they came about? Well, both Claire and I um, became increasingly aware that there were pockets of psychologists involved in facial palsy all around the world. So lots of expertise and experience uh, internationally, but there wasn't really an established network for people to share ideas. And there's certainly no agreed guidelines for how to support the psychological well-being of people with facial palsy. So we, we reached out to our contacts around the world to set up a group of, of research and clinical psychologists and other mental health professionals with a view to produce a set of practical guidelines for, for any mental health professional who might find themselves supporting a person with facial palsy. I guess the way that we kind of thought about it collectively was it was a bit of a how-to guide. So um, it was something that included the most up-to-date research at the time um, and practical clinical tips and recommendations for how to support people. Um, it, it was great because we had people from the United States, we had people from many countries uh, in Europe, um, and and actually, uh, we had the real benefit of, of having several of our, our, our experts involved or also people with their own lived experience of facial palsy themselves. Uh, and what was so great was there was also a mix of expertise in the group. So it was wonderful to be able to produce a really wide ranging set of recommendations for, for children, for adults from a variety of different uh, psychological theories, psychological models and approaches. Great stuff. Thank you both. And for any of our listeners who are interested in these guidelines, um, they can be found on the Facial Palsy UK website and we'll also have them linked in the show notes today. Well, thank you so much again to the both of you for coming on the podcast today and sharing your amazing work. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very Thanks. much Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. It's been great to chat. Last but not least on today's episode, we have Kathleen, who is involved with some fascinating work around disability, ableism and facial paralysis. Kathleen also has facial paralysis, so is able to comment on this matter from a lived experience perspective also. Welcome, Kathleen. It's really wonderful to have you on today. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. I'm a huge fan, actually. Oh, we'd love to hear that. Thank you so much. Um, so Kathleen, I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit more about yourself and your work. So I am an associate professor um, of psychology at Oregon State University. Um, and really, you know, my research focuses on ableism or disability prejudice. And uh, really my core interest and, and my first interest is prejudice towards people with facial paralysis and how people with facial paralysis manage that prejudice. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, Bruna, um, I was born with facial paralysis and the condition that I have is called Mobius syndrome. Um, and so it's a very rare neurological condition characterized by uh, the underdevelopment of the sixth and seventh cranial nerves and the brainstem. And what that means is People have a varying degree of facial weakness and limited side-to-side -side eye movement. Um, so for me, growing up, it meant that 
um, you know, early on, I realized that I communicated differently. And sometimes early on, too, people misunderstood what I was trying to communicate. And so, um, you know, I think quite naturally, I developed other alternative communication strategies to be sure that people understood my emotions and, you know, my needs, if we're talking about, you know, parents and caregivers and all of those sorts of things. Um, so just uh, from birth, essentially, I've been very interested in human communication. And that's what led me to study psychology. Um, and so, you know, I did some of my first research specifically on Mobius syndrome, and then I broadened out uh, to look at facial paralysis in general, because while Mobius syndrome is rare, the experience of facial paralysis is relatively common. Um, so, you know, I don't find it particularly useful to kind of look at as a psychologist, it's not especially useful to look at the different etiologies separately. Um, we all have um, kind of limited communication and unusual appearances. Um, so looking across those rare conditions to the more common uh, visible appearance of having facial paralysis uh, is, is what I tend to focus on. We find a lot of commonalities across the different conditions. Uh, I broadened a, a bit further out and started to look at people with rare disorders, um, of which most types of facial paralysis are rare. There are like 7,000 different rare disorders beyond that. Some of them involve visible differences, some of them involve conceivable differences. Um, and still, we find a lot of interesting commonalities around stigma. And then broader still um, is when I started looking at ableism as a whole. So looking at disability, common or rare, um, and how people with disabilities experience um, you know, structural discrimination, um, and how we manage those issues. That's super interesting, Kathleen. Thank you so much for sharing. And it's really interesting to know as well, kind of your history and what brought you to the work that you do today. You mentioned uh, kind of looking at differences between the different types of or different causes of facial paralysis. And I wonder if in your work or in work that you're aware of, you found any differences between paralysis that is acquired or congenital? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of my core interests. Um, so, you know, in terms of kind of grouping different etiologies together, I do find that useful. Um, but one comparison that I think uh, is important to make is the difference between being born with your condition and acquiring it at some point after birth. Um, so, this actually, again, struck home to me because of my own lived experience. Um, so I started off studying congenital facial paralysis and then started to connect with a broader community of people with acquired paralysis and going to support groups and things like that. And I started to realize that um, <clears throat> although we had, you know, most of the same physical um, challenges, the experience, at first at least, was quite different. So um, people with acquired paralysis often had these um, narratives of feeling a sense of loss, maybe even a loss of identity to some degree, because it involves your face, right? It's the symbol of our identity. Um, and having to relearn how to do specific tasks. And as, as a person with congenital paralysis, it actually taught me a lot more about myself because I realized that I had made these adaptations, um, but it happened so early that, you know, it happened kind of before my conscious awareness. Um, so, you know, those experiences made me really want to, to examine the different experiences um, because I think we can learn a lot from each other. So, um, one of the first studies I did was comparing uh, the expressive behavior of people with congenital and acquired facial paralysis. Um, so we interviewed uh, participants uh, for about a half an hour or so um, while videotaping them and asking them to tell us about 
um, you know, various experiences in their lives, their personalities, and have the experience that they had. Um, and then later we analyzed these videotapes uh, for nonverbal and verbal behavior. And what we found was that individuals who were born with their conditions uh, were more likely to use a lot of what I call alternative expression. So that is using gestures, um, varying their uh, torso posture, moving their heads, laughter, um, differences in vocal prosody compared to people who acquired their paralysis. Um, now, one thing that we should note here is of course, um, the longer you have a condition, the more of these adaptations you would have developed over time. All of the acquired participants had had their conditions for at least several years at that point. Um, so they had, you know, they were doing quite well, um, but there still seems to be potentially some damage to having been born with the condition or having it early on um, in terms of adaptation. And a follow-up study we did uh, involved showing these videotapes to naive strangers who didn't know about facial paralysis, and we had them rate the various levels of um, happiness and sociability or extroversion um, among the uh, what we call the targets, um, and we found that Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly to um, probably listeners of the podcast, people with more severe facial paralysis were viewed as less happy and less extroverted. However, if people use more alternative expression, uh, that effect was wiped out. So regardless of severity of facial paralysis, people who used a lot of alternative expression were viewed more positively. So that's some really good evidence that these are a good ad adaptive strategies um, that actually help with impression formation. Thank you, Kathleen. That's super interesting. And it's making me think about kind of real world implications of research. And I wonder, kind of taking those findings um, on board, what you would, you know, recommend to the facial paralysis community and what you think that means for people affected by facial paralysis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that uh, alternative expression uh, does seem to be a great tool um, if people are, uh, you know, in a position where they want to take back some power in uh, their interaction, maybe want to make a good impression. Um, of course, you know, there have been lots of discussions on this podcast already about how um, how kind of unfair it is that the burden is often on the person with facial difference themselves. Um, but, you know, I still think that it can be helpful to have extra tools in your tool belt if you would like to use them. And we've actually done some uh, communication skills workshops using these strategies, um, both in the US and the UK, um, with uh, partnering with Facial Policy UK, who I know is part of this conversation as well. Um, you know, but I also want to speak more broadly about um, how how mental health might be affected um, by, with uh, facial paralysis. So um, in a very recent study, I kind of continued this line of work where uh, we looked at uh, differences in experience between congenital and acquired um, participants. And uh, this study came out in 2020, and it was actually the largest uh, psychology study on facial paralysis. It was published in Health Psychology, um, and we had nearly 550 people with facial paralysis. Um, and essentially, we were interested in looking at um, two competing predictions in the literature. Um, the first prediction was that people with um, acquired conditions might have an adaptation advantage. And the reason for that prediction is that um, there's a thought that having facial expression um, in your early development may be crucial to uh, developing socio-emotional functioning later on. 
And a proposed mechanism of that is facial feedback theory, uh, this idea that when you move your face, it helps you to process your own emotions and other people's emotions. So if a child is not born with that ability, uh, this hypothesis would suggest that they, um, you know, have, will have a lot of challenges uh, processing emotion later in life. But then the other competing hypothesis um, really maps on to what the disability literature is now saying and, and what my more um, my kind of recent studies have said that maybe people with congenital paralysis have an advantage because they go through their um, initial development alongside their disability. So they naturally develop ways to adapt and they don't have a sense of um, pre-disability functioning. It just naturally happens um, as opposed to people with acquired conditions who must relearn how to function after they develop their condition. So we uh, surveyed these approximately 550 people um, on a variety of validated socio-emotional uh, measures. So uh, we looked at things like anxiety and depression. We looked at stigma. Uh, we looked at emotional clarity, which is one's ability to recognize their own emotions. And we looked at um, attachment. And so uh, we first compared people's scores to the population norms of people without facial paralysis. So we found that people with both acquired and congenital paralysis had high levels of anxiety and depression compared to the general population. We also found that people with acquired paralysis had some difficulties with emotional clarity. When we directly compared acquired and congenital people, uh, we found that individuals with acquired paralysis actually had more depression and anxiety and emotional clarity challenges. So, you know, this to me begs the question, what can we attribute those differences to? Um, so we then conducted a regression, uh, seeing what predicted anxiety and depression. What were the biggest correlates? And I found that stigma actually was the largest predictor of anxiety and depression. And so, you know, this really suggests that the experience that uh, people with facial paralysis have uh, with others. So the discrimination they might experience, the staring, the questioning, those are the things that really contribute to negative um, mental health. So this, to me, going back to your question about practical implications, says, okay, we know that all people with facial paralysis are at high risk for anxiety and depression. That is especially the case for people with acquired conditions. And these things are triggered by stigma. So this means that we need to, um, we need to intervene at two levels. We need to intervene um, at the societal level to stamp out stigma and discrimination increase awareness, increase policy and protective laws. And then we also need to intervene at the individual level. Um, so that means that anytime someone with facial paralysis presents with a, with a new paralysis, um, that the healthcare practitioner should screen them for at least anxiety and depression and offer mental health services. And um, you know, I know that you're also talking with Claire and Matt, and I worked with them to develop a set of guidelines that, that include those recommendations about um, ensuring that people with facial paralysis are screened and treated appropriately. That's really cool. Thank you, Kathleen. And it's uh, that's such a perfect example of how research can inform kind of the real world and, and the support that is available. Well, thank you so much, Kathleen. It's been so wonderful to have you on the podcast and I've really appreciated the insight that you've brought from a lived experience point of view and also the research and professional point of view too. And it's clear that the two kind of meet and marry perfectly um, 
for the work that you do. So thank you again for joining us and I hope to speak with you again very soon. Absolutely. This has been so fun. Thank you. Great stuff. As we said before, the interviews, so much that we can continue to talk about. So it was really great to have everyone on the podcast. Well, I think that's all we have time for for today. As ever, thank you so much for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. Until next time. Bye. Bye.